But I want to start with a couple of statistics. If I didn't show some statistics up here, Matthew Lawson would be very disappointed in me because he realizes that I am just a stat kind of guy. So, let me start with a few statistics. So if you'll go, and guys are doing the slides up there now, we're going to go real quickly on these first couple, so you hang along with me. We'll put that first one up there, and that is four out of five, which is 80% of Americans identify themselves as Christians. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that they are Christians. It just means that if you were to ask them, are you a Christian, they would say yes. So four out of five, that's a pretty large number if there are approximately... 310 million people in, in the United States. That's a, that's a large number. But out of those who say that they are Christians, only 50% of those are involved in church on a weekly basis. And I'd take that number down to 40% uh, there. So the only 80% claim to be a Christian, and of those 80, only 50% of those are involved in church on a weekly basis. Less than 50% of those believe that the Bible is accurate. Now that's a, that's a strong statement right there, and that's saying that there are many people, at least maybe half, of those who claim to be Christians who do not even believe that the Bible is the Word of God uh, and accurate in every area. Okay, well, let's go to the next statistic. There are 80% of people who identify themselves as Christians, but when the pollsters pressed them a little further and asked them, would you consider yourself to be, quote, born again? Now, being a Christian in many people's mind and being born again are different. That, that says a lot in and of itself. But nonetheless, uh, only 50% of Americans would de- describe themselves or call themselves as being born again. Well, let's look at some of the characteristics of those people. Uh, of those who claim to be born again, their lifestyle is virtually indistinguishable from the rest of the world around them. Many of these who are claiming to be born again believe that works can earn them a place in heaven. Most Christians think, or those who claim to be born again, many of those think that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Some even believed that Jesus sinned while on the earth. Now keep in mind, these are people who classify themselves, who call themselves born again. And so they are, in their own mind, at least born again, but yet believe that Jesus sinned while He was on the earth, or believe that you can get to heaven through some method of works. Now, taking in light the the maybe startling facts that I've just presented to you, and that is... There are 80% of Americans who claim to be Christians, 50% of Americans claim to be born again, and yet some of these facts are true. Let's come to a conclusion. This third slide here, 
will ask a question. Now, I'm going to offer, this is a multiple choice question. I know you like a test, right? So multiple choice question. There are three answers forthcoming, A, B, and C. I want you to, not, not out loud, but to, in your own mind, determine what is the correct answer. Do not say it, though. I will give you a chance. But here's the question. Uh, from what we just shared, these statistics, we can conclude the following. A, we can conclude that Christians are not really different from the rest of the world. B. Christians, we have done a poor job of communicating the gospel to the next generation. C. A lot of people in the world think they are Christians, but are not. What's the correct answer? Okay, now, normally we don't do this during the sermon, but we're going to vote, right? <laughs> So, how many think A is the right answer? Nobody? Alright. How many think B is the right answer? A few. Okay. How many think C is the right answer? Alright. And there were a few more. And then, of course, some of you just don't think, right? (laughs) Well, it's kind of a trick question. They're all three true. Okay. They're all true. At least that's my opinion. <laughs> They're all true. Now, let's turn our attention to Psalm 78 and see what can we learn from that? What can we do about that? If it is true, and let's look at those three statements one last time. If it is true that Christians are not really different than the rest of the world, By the way, I'm not saying you're no different. I'm not saying all Christians are not any different. I'm just simply using a a majority type thing there. Uh, If we are saying that, which I think is true, and if we are saying that we as Christians have done a fairly poor job of communicating the gospel to the next generation, and if we are saying that, unfortunately, there are those out there who think that they are Christians and perhaps even believe that they are on their way to heaven, but uh, they are not, sadly, uh, that is not the case. If that is true, then what should we do? What, what are our responses to that type of news? So let's look at it now as we begin to look at Psalm 78 and we call this the next generation. And the psalmist here says, and we start with the first point, and you're going to see that there are several points. Now, I know you get all excited when I say several points. Say, oh, no, it is a quarter after 11, and we'll be here till you know, 3 or something like that. You know, if you ever heard the story, the, the story was told of a guy who, when he was preaching, uh, he, what he would do every time he would, right before he'd get ready to go up to the pulpit, he'd put a little mint or some sort of cert or something like that in his mouth and just kind of hold it there in his mouth as he preached. And so then that would be a timer to him so that when it melted and it was finally gone, then he should stop. And that seemed to work well for for a, a while. But then one day, unfortunately, uh, he reached in his pocket to get his mint and he didn't realize it that he put a button in his, in his mouth. <laughs> that seems a little far-fetched, but that was told as the truth. But, you know, um, sometimes... Uh, you have to be a little generous with uh, people's jokes, right? Like you just did that. <laughs> We're going to give you seven things here from these eight verses. Hopefully it will go pretty quickly. I want to draw a few conclusions as we go, but I'd like for you to draw some conclusions as well. So first of all, we see the mandate. Now, 
Brother Tim said he was going to read the first eight verses, and that's all I'm going to cover. And I don't know if you've looked at this, but there are 72 verses in this psalm. If we were to preach the whole psalm, it would take us, you know, like three years. <laughs> Maybe. Not quite that long, I'm exaggerating. But this psalm, if you read it, it, it gives a history, it rehearses a history of the nation of Israel. Maybe not right this moment, but sometime read the verses following, verse 8 and 9 and following. And you will see a history of Israel, their, their shortcomings and their failures. And you'll see some of the things that God has done and worked out His mighty wonders as these verses talk about uh, for the nation. But now the psalmist comes to the people and he says, first of all, the mandate. And the mandate is very simple. Listen. Verse 1, listen. Okay? Now, now who is to listen. What does he say? And by the way, you're going to find that my exegesis of this text is not difficult because it really explains itself. He says to us, he says to us, all of us, hey, listen! How many parents have said to their kids, listen to me! Or, or here's the favorite of all parents, did you hear me? <laughs> well, yeah, they heard you all right. But what you really meant is, are you going to do what I told you to do? Not, did you really hear me? Did the, did the sound come through your ear canal? Yeah, but listen to me. <laughs> and the psalmist now is saying, listen. Okay, who is to listen? Well, very simple. Who is supposed to listen? We are uh, all my people. This is written not to the unbeliever. Although they can gain some things from it, as always is the case with the Scriptures. But this is written, written, written to God's people. In context here, it would be the nation of Israel. So he says, first of all, listen. Well, what are we to listen to? To my instruction. To my instruction. To my law. That's what we're to listen to. He goes on to say later in this very first verse, listen to the words of my mouth. The phrase words of my mouth refers to the the Scriptures. It refers to the inspired Scriptures. God's authoritative Word. Listen to my words. Listen. So we see who is to listen. That's us. We see what we are to listen to. His instruction. And then we see how we are to listen. How are we to listen? Well, he says in verse 1 that we are to incline our ears. Let me give you this picture. At home we have a little Yorkie. His name is Brady. And so, when Brady is at home and hears something outside, what will he do? You know this intuitively because you probably have seen this many times before on a pet of your own. Brady will take his little ears, which might be laid back because he might be laying there sleeping. But, but when he hears something, those ears will pop up. He's got big ears anyway. And those ears will perk up. And he's listening. He has learned the sound of the garage door opener. I mean, not, not so much the opener, but the garage when it opens. And so, sometimes I will be home, alright, and I'm, uh, Brady's with me. If, if I'm there, he's with me. And, and, and we hear the Garage door beginning to open. That means mommy's coming home, right? So as soon as he hears that garage door start to grind, his ears perk up, and I'll say, "I hear something." And he'll <laughs> perk up, 
And he will listen. He'll, he'll stand still just for a moment. But then as soon as he realizes, oh, that's the garage door coming up. He takes off right to the door. And then he says, turns in circles till you open the door. It's dogs. You know, just turn in circles over and over again. I don't know why. He gets excited. <laughs> Mommy's home. She's going to feed me. <laughs> That's what the psalmist is saying here. Incline your ears. Has the idea of a dog or perhaps even a horse. When they hear something, those ears will come up. And he's saying to you and he's saying to me, okay, I'm going to give you some instruction here now. And I tell you what, you need to, you need to perk your ear up. You need to incline toward me. You know, when somebody can't hear, they might lean over and say, what? <laughs> and that's what the psalmist is saying here. Alright, I want you to listen to this. I want you to train your ear towards this. I want you to get it. So we see the mandate. And that is to listen. Okay? But secondly, we see the mode. Okay? He says, how is he going to speak? The mode means the method in this case. How is he going to speak? He's going to give us instruction. Verse 2, he says, I will open my mouth... In a parable, I will utter dark sayings. So the first thing he says is, I'm going to use a parable. A parable, as we know, is an illustration. It's an illustration by comparison or an explanation by comparison. And in this particular context, the psalmist is saying, I want you to notice the history of Israel. I want you to notice their shortcomings and their failures. I want you to notice how God has provided for them. And yet, despite their, God's provision and despite God's blessing, they turn their back on God time after time after time. He says, here's the story. Listen to it. It's an illustration. And we can learn from that illustration. He also says, I'm going to speak to you in dark sayings. Now, I don't know what translation you might have. They mostly all say dark, trans, uh, dark sayings, but some of them might even use the word riddle right there. To say, I'm going to speak to you in a riddle. <clears throat> in this case, it simply means something <clears throat> excuse me, that is perplexing, something that's perhaps a little bit hard to understand, something that might require interpretation. In this case, he's saying to the readers. He's saying, I want you to observe God's gifts. I want you to observe God's faithfulness. I want you to notice His mercy, His love, His power, His grace. And I want you to notice how Israel failed even despite God's revelation of Himself. And we can learn from that. We can learn essential truths that will be helpful for us in our own spiritual edification. So he says, listen, there are lessons that you can learn by looking at the past of Israel. There are lessons that you can learn. It will seem like a parable. It might even seem like a riddle. It might even seem like a dark saying. But listen. Number three, we see the motivation. So first of all, the mandate and then the mode. But now the motivation in verse number three. He says, why should we listen why do we need to hear this? Because which we have heard and known. Not only is it our motivation, but it is our source. How? What are we supposed to tell? He hasn't gone that far yet, but we know he's about to say, hey, you need to tell the next generation something here. But what are we going to tell them? We need to tell them what we have known and what we have heard. You can't tell what you do not know. 
And he says to the, the listeners here, I want you to notice what we have heard and what we have known. The motivation and the source of instruction that the psalmist is talking about comes from the truth that he has known. Notice the use of the word we right there. He didn't say what you have heard. He says what we have heard. But I want you to also notice this. This is instruction that is fortified by example. Because the last part of verse 3 says, which we have heard and known and our fathers. A little bit more to be said about that later. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing for the message to be fortified, to, to be strengthened by the example. And he says, I want you to pay attention to what you've heard and what you've known and what you've seen from your fathers and what they have told us. Listen, the more a parent teaches their children, that's important, but it must be backed up, it must be fortified, it must be strengthened by the example. We've all heard of people who would say, hey, don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, the message is then lost. A parent can't say, well, do this, but then they don't do it. We must not only tell our children, but we must show them. We must show them by example. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Parents, let me say to you, and I'm a parent, so I say to me, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, We're never meant to be a substitute for the mother and the father. Now that doesn't mean that the Sunday school teacher, the pastor, the youth leader, and these other agencies cannot come alongside of you and help to instruct your children. But ultimately, it is your responsibility. Ultimately, it is my responsibility as a parent to instruct my children, and not just to instruct them with words, but to back that up with my example, with my life. That is our motivation. That is our source. Number four, verse four, the mission. Here is our mission. He says, we will not conceal. We will not hide from their children. I want you to notice our mission. This has to be our mission, church. This has to be our mission, parents. And our mission is a resolve and a determination that we will not hide. We will not conceal. We will not fail to tell the next generation the truths that have been gleaned. Notice he says, it is our responsibility to tell the next generation of the, the awesomeness of God. doesn't say exactly that term right there, but if you follow the, the uh, context, it is our responsibility to tell about what God has done, about His wondrous works, to sing of His praises. It is our responsibility. That is our mission. In this 
verse, verse 4, he says, we will not hide them from their children. How cruel would it be if I knew where there was water, but yet I refused to tell the source of that water to someone who was dying of thirst? How cruel would that be? And that is the same thing would happen is if we as parents, if we as a church, if we know the source of life, if we know what they need, and yet we fail to communicate that message. He says, but to tell the generation. Now, what should we tell them? What should we tell them? The psalmist seems to be aware here of the ever-present problem that parents have of communicating God's truth to the next generation. Here's our problem, parents. We become preoccupied with life. We get caught up in materialism and our jobs and all the things that we fail to communicate to our children. The instructions... From God. We fail to communicate to the next generation His wondrous works. We fail to communicate His praises. Verse number 4, the last part says, But tell the next generation the praises of the Lord. The ESV there translate the word praises as glorious deeds. What are we going to tell them? Okay, our mission is that we will tell. Church, do we see that as our mission? Do we understand at Cornerstone Baptist, and not just Cornerstone, but all churches, our mission is to tell. We cannot tell what we have not heard. But if we have heard, and we know the truth, how sad would it be to keep the truth to ourselves and not tell? So our mission is to tell that next generation. Okay, so that's our mission. Now let's look at our message, which is the last part of verse 4. And verse 5. The first thing we tell them, we tell them about the personality of God. They need to hear of His praises. They need to hear of His glorious deeds. They need to hear, as it says there in Psalm, uh, uh, the last part of verse 4, tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord. They need to hear of His work in creation. They need to hear of His work in salvation. Let's go back in time. Let's put ourselves in the life of a Hebrew parent in the nation of Israel. Moses told them back in Deuteronomy, you tell this to your children. Chapter 6. So my young child, I need to tell them you know what happened one day? We were being pursued by the Egyptian army. We were on our way out of Egypt. We've been in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God, through His mighty hand, had raised us up out of Egypt and said to get up and to go to the land that I'll show you. And we were on our way out of the land. And old Pharaoh just changed his mind and he sent his chariots after us. And they were coming on us from the rear. And in front of us we had the Red Sea. And we were trapped. We thought we were doomed. We thought that was it. But Moses went up 
And he held out his hand. And through the power of God, God parted the Red Sea. And the waters walled up. And we walked through there on dry ground. It was amazing. It's like anything I've never seen before or ever again. And we walked through there. The whole Hebrew people, the fledgling nation, nation, And just as we were getting done, we look behind us and we see a cloud of dust where the chariots and the horses of Pharaoh are coming on us. And they got and they come into the Red Sea and they began to come after us. But God caused the waters to fall down on them. And they all perished. God miraculously saved us that day. That's what we tell. You say, well, Eddie... That's a great story. But that story happened 1,500 years before Christ. (laughs) Okay. I've never seen the Red Sea parted. I believe it did. I've never seen it. I didn't walk through there on dry ground. I can't tell that story. But I tell you one I can tell. One night... After church, on a Sunday night, a bunch of us guys from a little church out in the country, Fellowship Baptist, not the one over here, we were on our way to play putt-putt. This is a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, after the evening service. We were on our way. It's summertime. We were on our way to play putt-putt. Down in High Point, right beside Cookouts. Place, same place. They remodeled. So we're in a car. I'm there. I, I'm not old enough to drive them. Just 13. But I'm riding with the other. And we're on our way to putt-putt. And we're excited. We're going to play putt-putt. And for some reason or another, I don't know why, but for some reason we began to talk about hell. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but that's not really a subject that teenage boys typically talk about. Especially not when we're on our way to go putt-putt. And so... We began to talk about hell, and I don't know why this subject came up. I really do not understand that, except that God had His hand in it. And so we began to talk about that, and, and we were carrying on a conversation, and somebody made a comment in the car. Another uh, young person said, you know, I don't want to go to hell. And I said, well, I don't either. <laughs> Who does? I don't want to go to hell. And we talked about that a little more. And the driver of the car, I give him credit, he was... Sensitive enough to what was going on that Sunday evening that he turned the car around. We didn't go to High Point. We didn't go to Putt-Putt. We went back to the pastor's house located on Hedgecock Road. We went back to the pastor's house, knocked on the pastor's door. He's, you know, it's after church. He's, you know, probably relaxing now. He's after church. And, and all of a sudden he gets a knock on the door and there's about uh, a handful of teenagers at his door. And I bet he's thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> what's up now? <laughs> right? So we knock on the door and we go in there. His name is Pastor Wall. And so we uh, we said to Pastor Wall, hey, I don't know why we were talking about this, but we were talking about it. And and I just suddenly realized that, that I'm on my way to hell. I just suddenly realized that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. What do I need to do? And I, that night, Sunday night, in, in the living room of the pastor's house, in a recliner... I bowed my knees, put my head in that recliner, and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. 
That's a story. And my daughter needs to hear about it. You see, parents, that's what we got to tell. We can tell them about Moses and the Red Sea. We can tell them about Daniel and the lion's den. We can tell them about David and Goliath. We can tell them about Ezekiel and the prophets of Baal. We can tell them all of those stories. And we should. But they need to hear your story too. You see, that's what the psalmist is saying. We, they need to hear of the praises of the Lord, of His glorious deeds, how He's worked in your life. They need to hear of His grace. They need to hear of His mercy. They need to hear of His love. They need to hear of His patience. They need to hear of His power. They need to hear of His justice. They need to hear of His faithfulness. They need to hear of His omnipotence. They need to hear of His strength. Back to verse 4 it says, and His strength. The word can also be translated might. They need to hear of the strength. Exodus 13 verse 16 says, it shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. For by the strength of the hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. Those parents that day were instructed to tell the next generation how God through His mighty hand and through His strength, not theirs, but through His strength, He brought them up out of Egypt. They need to hear of His strength. Exodus chapter 15, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. They need to hear of His strength. They need to hear, back to verse 4, of His wondrous works. Oh God, the psalmist says, You have taught me from my youth, and to this day I will declare Your wondrous works. When they go to school and that science teacher tries to tell them that this earth evolved uh, or was created through some explosion, some big bang, and that we evolved as a human race. They need to hear of the creation. They need to hear the truth from the Scriptures that, oh no, you're not evolved. You were created in the image of God by an almighty God. This earth didn't wasn't the process of some big bang out there eons and eons ago. God, in His infinite power, He just one day decided, let there be, and there was. They need to hear that. They need to hear it because they won't hear it at school. And listen, parents, don't rely upon the science teacher to tell your children. They won't tell them. They won't tell them the truth. You tell them. They need to hear it. They need to hear of His wondrous works. So that way, when they're standing in front of a college professor whom they disagree with, they can give a reason for the hope that lies within them. They can be respectful and they can be courteous, but they also can take a stand for what they know to be the truth. Why can they do that? Because they heard it from their parents. Because they heard it from those around them. Because not only did they hear it, they saw it lived out in the parents' lives. That's the message. The first point of the message is the personality of God. His omnipotence, His justice, His power, His love, His mercy. But they also need to hear of the provision of God. 
It's part of the message. The provision of God. Look at verse number 5. He has established a testimony in Jacob. Another word there for Jacob would be Israel. It's a reference to the whole nation here. And he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach. God has revealed Himself through His Word. He has established a testimony. Here we have it. It's a testimony. It's divinely revealed and inspired oracles. It's the Scriptures. It's an infallible document. God's Word to Israel and God's Word to us. Listen, these were not cunning, devised fables or traditions. We don't tell our children fables and traditions. We tell them the truth of the Word of God. What the psalmist is saying to the parents is that what you have to offer your children as far as instruction is nothing short of the miraculous Word of God which is designed to protect both us and our children from the many deceptive counterfeits being offered by a world which is rushing along, heading for destruction under the deception of Satan. And with the world rushing by, being led by the deceiver himself, what we have to offer this generation and the next generation is nothing short of the truth of the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's what God has given us. He established a testimony. The church must be united. We talked about unity in Christian Growth Group this morning. And the church has got to be united from the preschool to the pulpit. And it's got to be united around one great and mighty truth. It's a simple truth, but here's the truth. From preschool to the pulpit, it's the same truth. The Gospel of Jesus Christ transforms lives. That's the truth. And it's got to be preached in the preschool and the children and the youth and the young adults and the older adults and the senior adults and for all of us. Perhaps many churches fail to teach the truth of the Gospel to children because the law is more attractive. See, Eddie, what do you mean? Well, the, the law, which is basically a list of do's and don'ts, provides children ministry leaders and parents a false assurance they're, that they're doing the right things. Therefore, we can check off boxes like a spiritual checklist. Okay, they did this, did that. But no, no. The Ten Commandments point us to Jesus. The Ten Commandments point us to a Savior because we realize we cannot obey them. We cannot keep them. The commandments show us that we need a Savior. Listen, sideline note, parents, 
You need to put your trust. I'm not saying you don't. Maybe I'm reminding us. We need to put our trust in the Word of God and not what our world tells us. Okay? Amazon.com. If you go out there and you type in child rearing, there are hundreds of thousands of books and titles that will pop up in your search. It is estimated that if you read one book per day on how to raise your children, for it will take you 165 years, one per day, 165 years to read all the books. But the problem with all of those books, or most of those, even some of the Christian books, is that they have failed to realize that this book does it better. We need to communicate the character of the Bible. We need to communicate it as inerrant, infallible. Well, I need to move on, and I promise I'll go faster. i got to watch. The method. So we saw the message, now the method. The last part of verse 5 says that they should teach them to their children. Notice the use of the word there, right in that verse. Uh, who is their children? He didn't, the psalmist didn't say our children. Actually, I know this is a little confusing, but their children is a reference to his father's. So technically, his father's children are his. In other words, all of our children. We need to teach it. That's the method. How are we going to communicate the gospel? We have to do it by teaching our children. We, unfortunately, are raising a generation of biblically illiterate children. I don't mean that to be personal, young people. I'm not saying you are, but I'm talking about in general. In America today, with all of our technology and with our scientific age, our students today know more about how to get to the moon than they do how to get to heaven. They know more about computer technology, and I'm a computer guy, than they know about the Bible. I'm not against learning about the moon or about computers. I'm simply saying that we've got to rectify the gap. A survey was taken years ago and revealed that over half of American teenagers could not name even one of the four Gospels. Not even one. In a multiple choice question, some decided that the epistles were actually the wives of the apostles. That Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And that Moses was the father of Jesus. Now we th hear that and we think, oh no, that, that could never happen. But it has happened. We are raising a biblical, illiterate generation. The word here in, in this verse is the Hebrew word yada, which is just translated teach. And the word means to make known, to declare. 
And so parents, and particularly fathers, it is our unction here from the psalmist to say, teach your children. Teach them. It's not an option. It's an imperative. That's the method. How are we going to communicate this to the next generation? Teach it to the ones that we have now. It's an imperative. Lastly, the motive. So the method is we teach. We teach with our words. We teach with our lives. We teach by example. We teach by precept. Why? Why do it? The motive. Verse number 6. That the generation to come will know. We teach this generation so that the next generation will know. Even the children yet to be born. Notice the children not yet born. Hey parents, that's your grandchildren. And your great-grandchildren. How are they going to know? You've got to tell this generation so they can tell the next generation. That's the motive. So that they will declare them to their children. Why do we teach this generation so they'll teach it to the next? That's what it says in verse 6. God holds us responsible. Number seven, another motive. Why do we teach? So, verse seven, that they should put their confidence or their hope in God. We sing that song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Right? That's why we teach. So that they will put their confidence, their hope in God. Young people, you can't put your confidence in the American way of life. You can't put your confidence in your bank account. You can't put your confidence and your hope in your health, in your youth. All of those things will fade. But you can put your confidence in God. You can set your hope there. And then the third motive is so that they will not forget the works, but keep His commandments. In verse number 7, that they will keep His commandments. Our goal as parents is a personal faith a confident faith in our children. They will keep His commandments. Why do I keep the commandments of God? For some, it's out of duty. Just got to do it. So we teach our young people, unfortunately, that the Christian life is doing this and doing that. I'm not saying that behavior is not important. I'm saying that behavior is not the main thing. We have to go to the heart. We have to get down to the heart. That's why in Deuteronomy... In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
Church, behavior is important. But we have to go for the heart. Every church must believe. Every parent must believe. Not only in doctrine, but in practice. That a transformed heart is infinitely more important than behavior. A changed heart will result in obedience. You see, if we want our children to overcome the world, it will only be because their hearts have been transformed. That they need to be around people whose hearts have been transformed. The way to overcome the world is not morality, it's not self discipline. The way to overcome the world is to show our young people that there is something more attractive than the world. And listen, here's the problem. I'm not a great philosopher, but I can figure this out, and I know you as parents have figured this out. The world has many attractions, and they will offer your young people the excitement and the pleasure of sin. Now, the world won't call it sin. They'll call it fun. They'll call it exciting. They'll call it all kinds of things. But the world can offer distractions for your young people. And unless, as a church, we can convince them that we have something that is more attractive than the world, and that something is simply this, Jesus Christ. That's what it's got to be. I can try to get you to live a good life. I can say, Matthew, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. The problem is, the world is going to pull you and now you're just trying to modify your behavior and you're not likely to be successful with that. But if I can convince you that the life in Christ is more attractive and better than the life out there in the world, then now you've got a chance. Right? That's what we have to do as the church. The children's ministry can drift towards teaching for behavior. The student ministry tends to drift towards teaching against behavior. When they're in children, so we, we want them, hey, do this, do that. We, need to, we teach them what we want them to do. And when we get to be youth and young adults, we teach them what we don't want them to do. Don't do this, don't do that. I'll close this illustration. Most of you have heard of the Iditarod. The Iditarod is a famous dog sled race. The Iditarod had its beginning in 1925. In 1925, there was an outbreak of a highly contagious disease known as diphtheria. Now today we have medicines for this and vaccinations, but in 1925, that was not available. And there were hundreds of children that were exposed in a little town in Alaska, Nome. The problem was that the only serum, the life-saving medicine that could help these young people was in Anchorage. So, in order to get the life-saving serum to the children in Nome from Anchorage, they devised a scheme. 
And so they began first by carrying the medicine on train. And they went by train to a little town in Alaska called Ninana. I mean, I'd have pronounced that right. But from there to Nome, they strategically placed riders and dogs. And from there to Nome, they took the serum by way of dog sled. More than 150 dogs and 20 mushers or drivers were involved in transporting 300,000 units of life-saving serum across the Alaskan countryside in only 127 hours. A record that, by the way, has yet to be broken. And we're not talking about airplane, but on the ground. By combining the right medicine with a radical effort, an entire generation was rescued. So my point, while the Iditarod had an amazing origin, today it's just another sporting event. Today, teams race along a similar path, but the difference is the motivation. The same is true in our churches. If we are not careful, we will gather our children and we will gather our teenagers and we will go through the motions of Christian discipleship without a sense of the life-giving message and mission that we as a church have been given. The church, the race is on. The stakes are high. It is not our strategy that is important, but the serum, the gospel, which is the only thing that can bring about transformation. We must tell the next generation.